So there's this tribalism that's so primitive that we've still got. And we've got to get around this tribalism. I mean, people are scared of globalism, but really we are just this little tiny blue planet in this massive universe. And the fact that we can't get on. It's unbelievable. And we're actually ruining the planet in the process is just unbelievable. Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves because at the end of the day all transformation is human transformation that's why i created insert human a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us and in doing so shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all Before we dive in today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide the seven habits of highly transformative leaders at chriscolbert.com. Greetings, everybody. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to another episode of Insert Human and yet another very special guest. And actually, I'm going to say he's a friend of mine, even though we've only really known each other for about an hour and a half. Dr. Richard Harris. Richard is in Sydney, Australia. He is a vascular surgeon. And as importantly, he is the author of a book and about to be another book. Is that right, Richard? Yeah. About to be another book. And the name of his book is Imagine. And what drew me to having Richard on the show, and I'll let him explain the book in more detail, but the idea of Imagine is imagine a day where everything in the world worked the way we all wanted it to be relates to the Beatles song, but I'll let, I'll let Richard explain that. And why that is so relevant to me is one, I wish we had that day, not just a day, but every day. And secondly, I, I think everybody knows I'm writing a book titled Technology is Dead, and it's about what do we do about the state of the world? And in a way, Richard's articulation of this day is the outcome that I think I seek and others seek. And so I want to plumb the depths of what is that what does that day look like? And then how might we as a, as a, uh, a species begin to, to work towards that day? But I've done a terrible job of explaining what the book is about, so I'm not going to flip it over to Richard. Richard, tell us about Imagine. Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Yeah, Imagine's a, a novel that basically is a mirror of the song by John Lennon and, and Yoko Ono. And 
So it's it's aiming to live up to the the verse and chorus, the harmonies of it, the the sentiment of it, the lyrics, the the message, and the I guess the political and social message of the song. And I very much admired the song. It's such a beautiful piece of art mm-hmm. in itself. It's absolutely, and it resonates with so many millions of people and certainly resonated with me. And I'm a massive Beatles and Lennon fan. And, you know, despite the fact that he's definitely a flawed genius, the the, the sort of feelings that come through in that and, and the imagining of a world in peace and together and connected is such a strong message. And it's it's it was, for me, became a vehicle to express my philosophies, how I wanted to connect with the world, how I would like to see the world. When did you have the the moment of, I should write a book that, that tracks with that song or reflects that song? Like, was that, when was that? And, and where were you when you had that moment? Yeah, I think that song's been just resonating in my brain for the last, you know, it has been out for 50 years and I'm 58. And I, I think that's just been in and out of my brain, that song for so many years. So, you know, I would have played it myself hundreds of times. I would have heard it, you know, being played by other people and in big communal con- context as well. It's been played at two Olympics. It's almost like a world anthem for the possibilities of this world. And so I, I can't remember the exact moment that I said, I'm going to write a book about this. But in setting out a, a desire to seriously write and get, get some proper words down on paper that had been coming out of my soul for so long, I, I, I set to this song and I, somehow that that inspired me to, to specifically try and stick to that song and reflect it exactly in the whole of the novel. So it's not just one day this imagine, it's it's a day where the world transforms. So it's called I Day, but from then on, because of a deployment of a technology as a metaphor almost for the change that could happen in ourselves, the whole world changes on that day. So once this technology is deployed, the entire world becomes intelligent and cooperative and non-greedy and non-selfish. And all of the rational and intelligent decisions of humanity are taken from that day. And so very quickly, military is gone, nuclear weapons are gone, governments are gone. Uh, democracy is established in a way that I've, I've imagined democracy to be a workable and sensible way to make decisions around the world where people with great ideas are brought forward as champions and can people can vote on these things in mass numbers with technology that we, we've sort of got going forward. Basic social things, the de-emphasis of institutionalised religion. Uh, he kind of said in the song, no religion. I, I've said that it's more, there is still a sense of spirituality and a, and a seeking of ho- of a higher purpose and a higher love, if you like. So I, I don't think, maybe, I don't think his intention was to ruin spirituality or the seeking of higher a higher love. But yeah, I think the I've incorporated the loss of religiosity in the in the novel as well. How much of the construct of I Day would you say is is derivative of the lyrics? And I should have listened to it for, for today and I apologize that I didn't do that. But was do you feel like was a in a way a prescription or or there were bits and pieces, and then as the author of the book, you you filled in 
you know, the bulk of the, uh, of the equation, if you will. Yeah. Look, I think, I think if people read it and, and more and more people are reading it, they'll, they will see the song in the book. And there's so much of, of uh, harmony in there and so much waves, the whole way that we change is waves. And, and so a song is that song has these beautiful harmonies and waves of, of chorus and verse that interact with each other. And so that's the same way that the book is constructed. People and characters come into the story in waves and, and the way that we transform is by these waves that are developed in this Californian lab. It's one of the early chapters. It's a bit of an esoteric chapter where it's <clears throat> describing how this was discovered. But really, that's, it's, it's really a metaphor for what we, right. could re- what we could really do to change. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think it's pretty faithful to the song, to the lyrics. But then I've taken the real world. So I've taken South Africa. I've traveled quite a lot in my life and been to Chicago and been to difficult places around the world. And there's so many obvious things in the world that we could change if we were all intelligent. So if, if things were according to that, that science fiction scenario where all of a sudden we were not fighting each other, not wanting to divide each other, then there would be amazing changes in the world straight away. So I think the idea of writing something like that and putting my philosophy down is so people can have a glimpse of of what could happen in the real world if that change happened within our in our hearts and minds. But um, so yeah, I've taken taken the words and lyrics, very much applied it to absolutely real world situations like racism like this, the, pover- the question of poverty around the world and the question of distribution of income. Those are sort of basic things, yeah. So let me share, I want to share where I am in the technology is dead uh, because the construct, I have a construct in terms of my proposed solution, which is really more of a framework, but let's call it a solution. And I'd love to just very quickly share what that construct is and then have you sort of come back to me th- comparing it to the construct of what you propose and imagine and just see, are there similarities? Are there differences? Like one of the things you just said, which is part of what my construct calls for is, is not the dissolution of government, but a recognition that our governments, both national and world global are not capable of solving the problem. So, so here's the construct. Number one, we have to have clear intentionality as a species in terms of what constitutes human progress. Number two, we have to change the paradigm of rule, which is this point of the governments can't solve the problem. Number three, we have to reinvent the core systems that underpin society, education, healthcare, finance, banking. And number the one I'm section I'm on now, which is arguably the most important section, which you alluded to before and includes things like racism, is changing our behavior. Like one of my crazy expressions is behavior is the root of all action, all decision-making and all consequence. And the, the irony for me about humans is we, we ignore our behavior <laughs> like all the time. And so those are the big pieces of, you know, change the, what are we after? The governing entities aren't going to be able to get us there. The systems that underpin don't, aren't adapting fast enough and then this last big piece is behavior. Like, how does that fit or not fit with what you imagine 
is necessary to get us to to I day. Yeah, I mean, I think your your analysis of it is very much based in real world. Where as a as a novelist, I can create a situation where the impediments to our development to where you're going, gone in one day. Like they're, they're just gone. When we try and do it in the real world, you've got so many difficulties in that, in, in the way that power structures are in place. So you've got governments that are totally nationalistic and totally for their people. So there's this tribalism that's so primitive that we've still got. And we've got to get around this tribalism. I mean, people are scared of globalism, but really we are just this little tiny blue planet in this massive universe. And the fact that we can't get on. It's unbelievable. And we're actually ruining the planet in the process is just unbelievable. By the way, I have an editor and one of the lines in my book is humankind is wired for war, which is a form of the tribalist, you know, thing. And he, he says to me, well, can you prove that? And I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I mean, I think there's only been seven years in the entire history of humankind that we weren't doing battle, you know, like, come on. I mean, and how crazy is that, that we can't evolve to the point where we're not actually having to kill each other, that we can't organize ourselves enough to be able to share. But it is that kind of, there's that individual greed, but people say so, there's psychological studies that, People are more good than bad. But as a group, as a herd, we organize ourselves into these things called countries or cities or city states or corporations that, that are then become impediments. And we become part of the herd that's doing things and investing in companies that are that are doing things against our overall interest. So I mean, I mean, I think I think some of the stuff I've read and researched for my book is yes. There's this view that humankind is predisposed to good, but but when humankind is threatened, and this goes to Matt, we were talking to the audience, Richard and I were talking earlier about Maslow's hierarchy, which you all know I'm a big, big fan of. And the base level of need is physiological, food, water, shelter. The second level is safety, which is really control, I think, in modern terms. And the third level is belonging. And then self-actualization is a couple levels above that. And I think when, when, when segments of the population fear survival, uh, fear those not being able to achieve the, the first couple of levels of need, physiological and safety, they go to a very combative place. They go, they lose their goodness and it's replaced with a, a, warring, a warring sensibility that's fueled fundamentally by fear. A lot of what we see around the world, particularly in the developed nations, is, is, is majority fearing loss of control, loss of power, and that's manifesting itself in uh, really horrifying and, and oftentimes violent, violent ways, you know? Yeah, and these are things that are, that are so difficult to overcome in the real world. And the, one, of the, one of the interesting concepts I was thinking about and talking about this week was if we're going to instill kindness and compassion into people, you actually got to start really young with people. Maybe too late for us oldies that, that we're not actually capable of changing that much. But if we actually educate um, children to understand morality, compassion, ethics, 
at a much more serious level at a, a young age, then then there's they're the ones that are probably going to not become criminals and not become, you know, aggressive. So I think that's a really important initiative to uh, think about. For yeah, I completely agree, and and it's consistent with you know my belief. I, I write about this in the book too about the need to reset what I call the entire human development system, and that's both the formal education, K twelve, higher ed you know, adult education and the informal education of what happens in home and communities and neighborhoods and, and, and the orientation of that focusing less on functional skills and more on human skills, which in the principles and everything you just said, you know, the terrible truth is at a systems level, our species doesn't, I mean, some countries probably do a better job than others, but I would say in total, we we are not developing that. We are not oriented towards that. But let's get back to your book and, and I-Day. What happens the day after I-Day? Well, so many things. See, one of the features of the book is that every chapter is set in relation to I-Day. So there's a geographical setting and there's a time frame. So some, some chapters are set in the 24 or 48 hours before I-Day, and then it comes through and you see what happens to that particular situation. So say one chapter set in Syria where the, they're deploying the technology into Aleppo, which is just a disaster. You know, these foreign powers are sort of playing war games <clears throat> in Syria. You've got all of these factions, the Syrian government backed by Russia. You've got the, you know, all these different factions and they and the, radical Muslim faction and you've got the Western back faction and they're all, you know, just destroying their, their own country at the, at the behest of, of war games of other people. But these guys get to deploy this technology around the town and at 7 o'clock on the day that I-Day happens, the guns just stop. The, the brothers are reunited. The, you know, the love story can start to happen with the the, the Catholic girl that he'd met in, the Muslim guy that he, who who's in love with the Catholic girl in Lebanon, he can get on his motorbike and ride ride down to Lebanon and be in love with this beautiful woman that in, in the past he couldn't have loved because of religious and cultural divide. So as soon as that hits, as soon as that intelligent wave hits humanity, these sort of things happen. People in Alabama, the jails are are open. So 95% of people leave the jails in Alabama on the on the moment I Day happens. The the Uyghurs in China are released from their concentration camps. And the and the lovely little Chinese Uyghur family can get reunited, you know, in the in the Do um, they know it's coming? No, no, it's it's all done. There is an ethics committee. But my ethics committee is very generous and they they allow for this deployment from this California university to be done around the world oh, without any governments knowing, without anyone knowing. And so <clears throat> they just turn it on, basically, and it comes in your, on your smartphone and it comes through the Wi-Fi and comes through. And these three waves come together and <clears throat> transform everybody at once. So that's, you know, I couldn't, there's no other... Well, that was my, my mechanism anyway of, of getting right. this this intelligence and cooperation to happen. So uh, there's, yeah. All right, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, some of the stories are about the, the champions of ideas. So to explain democracy and to explain how 
the how governance would work after after I Day. Um, some of the main characters are are the heroes of, of that type type of thing, and they that's another love story. There's lots of love stories in in the book, so it's 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 hidden mm-hmm. all the political manifesto, all the sort of mad mad ideas that I've got how the world should be is hidden in lots of different love stories and characters. How how far forward does the book go after I Day? Does it months or years or what's the time time horizon? The main characters characters go principally about five years out. But there is a history lecture done by a professor around 60 years after I Day. So he goes through the um the whole history of what happened to different countries and what happened to different, how the world coped with it, how, and there's students asking questions of the professor, you know, did it ever fail? Did it, you know, did the waves fail? Could they turn it off? Would people become murderous again or would people become criminal again? Because criminality gets wiped out by this technology as well. Basically, people aren't prone to to be doing bad things to each other. It's all about these in the initial sort of science experiment the rats cooperating and putting and they're not sort of competing for food and sort of helping each other get to get to things so that yeah it's so so that's that's the interesting question which is so the technology keeps pushing out the wave so it's i day but that's the beginning it's not a one day thing it's the beginning and it keeps going on and on and there is this question of if you if you pulled back on the waves would humans revert to form and start screwing everything up again? <laughs> yeah, and the answer was they, they revert to form somewhat, but not totally. So they, they become more evolved mm. and more prone to being being good, if you like. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you've said you've said more than once that I day uh inc- I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you'd use the word intelligence. Yes. Several times, yes. which I infer from that, that the, the there's a view that the cause of much of the world's dysfunction is a lack of intelligence. Is that, I don't, again, I don't want to like take you down I, a path that you don't. Yeah, I think, I think that's true to a certain extent in that I think as a herd, we become potentially less intelligent. We can be led by a essentially tyrannical intelligent person and somehow we allow that to happen we've been led by a tyrannical (laughs) non-intelligent person yeah i know oh god thank god he's gone for for the the moment anyway but uh, yeah he features in the in the in i day he's president baldwin which is a bit sad and topical at the moment but couldn't use president t in the in the story but um he basically on i day he resigns he recalls the military he yeah so the the form of governance happens changes incredibly quickly that people realize mm. that this is not actually the best way to govern to have a democracy so it's 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 really a democracy of the people where where people not in a in an uninformed way so people are much more able in this new world to understand concepts and to go through and research on their own and make a real decision on a, on an idea. And then you've got the people who are proposing that idea, say you're an expert at getting rid of plastic in the oceans, you'll be put forward up and up the chain of democracy to take that, that idea and the practicality of that forward and do it in the world. So 
It's uh, so and Richard, I have to say, I had a call this morning with an old friend that I haven't talked to in years, and we got into the human conversation. She's an education innovator person. And one of the things she said, which I so subscribe to, is how the vast majority of humans are uncomfortable with complexity and, and not willing to do the work to understand it. And so we gravitate towards simple, the simple, even if the simple is not an effective solution to the complex. And, and you know, I think our recent election or, you know, the last election ago, I think that was the appeal of that particular candidate was he, he was proposing simple solutions that weren't going to be effective, but they, they were simple. And so, so yeah, so. So um, I'm all in favor of complex, but, but as far as, as far as it's practical and I mean, I'm not saying that we should have a dictator in the world. I'm saying that it should be a, a um, efficient system of intellectual understanding on a mass right. scale and decision-making that actually makes sense rather than for because a lobbyist was able to give a politician you know, half a million dollars fund his next campaign. So, yeah, so yeah, much of that's happening around the world. The other one that I've been struggling with, and I love to hear how it works in the book, or maybe I do already know how it works in the book, because as I examine our behaviors as a species, it strikes me that there's a bifurcation between those motivated by self-interest versus those motivated by the good of the whole. And that those motivated by self-interest, I think, have a really hard time making the right decisions for society, whether the society is U.S. society or global society, because the pull of self-interest is so powerful that they lose all all sense of logic and, and... and compassion and like they just they go to this this no, that's this. so true and and it's so illogical because they've got so much money they just why are they create why do people at that level crave more and more and more it's bizarre you know they want to be you know having billions of dollars like what's the point of it right. and so in the in the novel yeah you can't earn more than five times the base wage. So I know that sounds a little anti-capitalistic, but when you think about it, if the base wage is $150,000 a year and you're earning $750,000 a year, you're not doing too badly, really. I mean, I think that's kind of, you could change it up a bit, maybe to make it 10 times more, but it shouldn't be that a, that a CEO earns 13,000 times more than his labourer. I just mm-hmm. don't see, I don't, that it's part of my philosophy that that's, Kind of ridiculous, and I, I guess I, as a surgeon, do okay. And I, but I don't think I need to to necessarily earn. I'd be happy if the whole society was doing that. But it's it's just an idea. What but, um? How do you articulate the that like in the book? Where where? How do you declare the sort of underpinnings of how the new I I society works? I mean, is it a is it a chapter of here are the new rules of the road or does it come through the stories? Like yeah, how it comes, you- yeah, it comes through the story. So it's just, you might be in, say, South Africa. It starts with a mother on a beach in Durban and she's playing with her baby and they're doing sand tunnels and they go out into the surf and, and just the joy of the waves. And then 
her husband comes back and he's a black guy, he's a professor, and he's one of the, the head change people. And they recall, they're having a chat over coffee about how what happened on I Day that she left her husband, which was a dull, ridiculous marriage, and he, she didn't, he didn't want to have kids, and she fell in love with this guy. And then what happens in South Africa is, I don't know if you've been there, but an amazing place. The animals, the scenery is just stunning. And if you go to the rich white townships, and it's it's like most fanciest malls you'll see in America. I mean, exactly the same. And mm. there's rich black people in, in those malls and there's plenty of white people shopping and doing all their stuff. But then if you go five kilometres out of town, there's these mass ghetto mm. townships where the shanty towns with just iron, sort of clad, iron cladding and terrible poverty and these thousands, tens of thousands of people in these, these little townships outside every town. And that's what you see on the countryside of South Africa. So in our day, when that, when that changes, those towns get wiped out straight away. They, well, with the world distribution of, of money, and that, I mean, that's just not considered fair anymore as far as the world is concerned. So the, the black people in those townships go and live with white people. They've got these huge houses that have been all locked up, but nobody's scared of anyone anymore. Nobody's Nobody's going to hurt anyone anymore on the, in this world. And those townships are then rebuilt and, you know, and people are living in a normal, a normal architectural, architecturally fair world. So, yeah, that's, those are the sort of broad things that happen as, as you see as, as the deployment of, of that happens. So there's, a, there's sort of these personal level stories and mass. I've got chapters on Mexico, a chapter on Mexico, which is fabulous, got a lovely horse, you know, this beautiful horse ride through the countryside. But it's also talking about the Coca-Cola factory that's killing people in, in right now. They've got more than 100 Coca-Cola factories in Mexico. And the diabetes and obesity in children is just oh. out of this world. It's worse than America, right? I mean, the obesity rate in Mexico, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the first thing that happens on iDay is, yeah, they, they just raise the Coca-Cola factory. It's not done in an angry way. It's just gone. So they, they drink water instead of Coca-Cola. It really is amazing how we enable these things that hurt us, you know, both at a macro level and at a micro, very personal level. We enable these behaviors that hurt us. And, and so mindful of the time, I think I can't wait to read the book. By the way, how, how do we find... Are you on Amazon? I assume you're yeah, on Amazon. Yeah, Amazon. Imagine, imagine a novel, Richard A. Harris. Richard um, A. Harris on an on a, You can get it book. through bookshops and Barnes and Noble and all that sort of all, of all of those places. Google Richard A. Harris, and the website's pretty interesting. RichardAHarris.com. It's got lots of info about the book and how to get it, and a little bit about me and a bit of I Day and, and the book. So yeah, they're, they're the main ways to, to grab hold of it. So a couple of things. One is in my book, the last chapter, so I'm on chapter 14 and the last chapter is I'm realizing needs to be some sort of call to action, structural opening that I can't leave the reader with, you know, the world's kind of screwed up. And if we do these things, it'll be better. Have a nice day. 
I have to give them some avenue. And I think we need to, you and I need to start talking about how do we, how do we move towards an I day, which maybe isn't as magical as the day that you've, you've depicted in the novel, but is a day where, where, you know, a global day where we recognize the need to transform and in that the different behaviors to exhibit, you know, the different ways of thinking, whatever. But I think, I think we could, could maybe bridge what you've crafted and what I'm trying to craft into, into a, a beginning of, dare I say, a movement of sorts. Yeah. But in the spirit of movement, I'd love for you just to leave us with, if I'm a listener and I am a listener and I'm motivated, which I am, what, what, what can I do? Like we all, we're all, I think, listening to this and saying, you know, the, we want a better outcome. We, we want a different set of circumstances. We want greater equality. We want to, we want to eliminate racism. We, we want, we want a, a healthier world physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. But we, I think oftentimes feel completely paralyzed. I also think to your point in the book, we don't believe our governance, our governments are going to get us there, whether they're our, our national governments or our global governing organizations, that none of them have shown any capacity to really operate at a global for the benefit of all level. So what can I do? You know, what can I, Chris Colbert, do starting today, tomorrow to try to move towards that I day kind of expression, you know, that I day kind of reality or, you know, can I do anything? Yeah. I think you can do lots of things. I mean, number one, read the poets, read, read it, imagine. I mean, it's, it's having that understanding and having that conceptualization that things could be better is, is probably half the battle. So I think the more people that do read, read poetry, read practical things that can, they can do. I mean, in terms of what you can do, you can realize and understand yourself that every little act of compassion and kindness is worthwhile and you are contributing to the to the evolution of man if you're doing that and being being mindful of that and being working towards doing that fairly regularly. I loved your suggestion last week, Chris, of kind of smiling at people, sort of saying hello as I'm walking my dog. And I did that all week. And and truly it was a wonderful little practical amazing, suggestion. Right? And I got <laughs> some beautiful smiles and, and acknowledgments from people. Uh, you know, a few people had their head down and you couldn't catch their eye type of thing, but it right. was a terrific little thing to do. I um, have learned, by the way, because I do it, I do it daily. I mean, I, it really is part of my practice, if you will. I've learned that approximately one in 10 people think you want something from them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. At least in America, at right. least in urban America, when you say hello to a stranger on the sidewalk, one yeah. in 10 are like, oh, is he going to ask me for money? <laughs> But um, yeah, I love that. I, you know, I, I think, I think just, you know, you and I were talking earlier about the whole idea of leading from the heart, which sounds trite and corny, but I think it's not, A, it's a very powerful thing to do. And B, I think for a lot of us, not necessarily because of the way we are, but the way society has effectively taught us to be is, is you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to lead from the head and you're supposed to lead from a position of skepticism. And I think to the extreme of that distrust yeah. and, you know, leading from the heart is, is 
And one of my one of my my heroes of all time is the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. And the way he composes himself and has and the way he interacts and the way he looks at the world and the way he looks at every human being yeah. is so profoundly loving and compassionate. Yeah. And if we could all just take a little piece of that, you know, just to Yeah. Interesting. We can't, we, we can't, but I guess it's, it's just the, even just talking about it though, Chris is, is great because you're putting in the minds of people out there to go and have another look at his philosophy. And, and that sort of putting that into people's brains is, is a very positive thing in the world. Yeah. And he, he obviously does it on a mass scale and, and, and brilliantly. So if, if we can sort of be inspired by those incredible people, that's definitely worth doing. So you're doing a, you're doing a great job. Um, no, thank you for that. that as well. But before I let you go, tell us a little bit about your next book because this is also diff, very different, but also I think for me very interesting. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so this is based in the 11th century and a little bit fascinated with the Normans of that century. And there are a bunch of Vikings that came down from Denmark and decided they wanted to live in France and took over Normandy had a bit of an uneasy relationship with the French king. And William in, uh, in 1066 decided he was the rightful king of England as well. So that was a very interesting year. They had, uh, they had a pope that was, he was a pope three times. There was all sorts of interesting things going on in history. Paper was being invented in, well, being made in Morocco, but hadn't made Europe for three centuries after until, I think, the 11th century was when paper started being made in Spain. So the Moors brought it up to hmm. Spain. But it's also a love story. This is a historical romance between a poetic Norman knight who <clears throat> happens not to be as brutal as the rest of them, um, but is the mastermind of William getting on the throne um, and a sort of Celtic, mysterious, red-headed Anglo-Saxon woman from England. So, yeah, it's... I've got to kill off her husband and a couple of... Sounds like a made-for-made-TV series. <laughs> yeah, look, I think Imagine's the Netflix series. This is more the, 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 the movie saga, I think. The <laughs> but, yeah, it's, 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 fun to, it's fun to imagine. And to research the 11th century is absolutely fascinating because there's quite a lot known about it, but so much you can, you can fill in. It's a bit like Imagine as well, you know, if once you've got a technology that can transform us all into intelligent people, you can you can do whatever you like with the world. Yeah. So so I'll leave you with this with an anecdote around kind of around all that, which is you said something earlier about, you know, these these things called countries are they're just they're just human constructs. Yeah. Like there's and that's the way I look at the world. Like I don't believe in countries. I don't I don't even really believe in con- continents. We're we're just one entity and one one species, and why can't we act like one. And I have, you know, I have thought of myself individually. I've described myself as a globalist. Like I don't think of myself as an American. I actually, a lot of times prefer not to think of myself as an American and I'm more comfortable around the world overseas. And, uh, you know, the work that I do is really about trying to sort of bring everything down to the most base human level, which, which ignores color and, and socioeconomic, like we're all just one people. Mm-hmm. And let's can't why can't we care about each other that way? So the funny thing is, Kate and I, my wife, I don't know, year and a half ago during COVID, we're bored and we're like, you know, we should do let's do 23andMe. Let's do the DNA thing to see from whence we came. And 
honestly, I was hoping that I came from everywhere. Like I was hoping that I was 1% everything, right? And I get the damn results and I'm like 90%. I think I'm Norman, Richard. I'm oh, actually- <laughs> cool. Very cool. <laughs> like from England and Northern France. Oh, wow. Wait, and I was so pissed off. I'm like, I, I think they're a very interesting race. They, they, they took over everything. They went to Italy. They, they kicked the Muslims and the Byzantines out of Italy. They kicked the Muslims out of Spain and they, they kicked the English out of England. And then um, uh, they, they, they became that people. They, they, right. very, they just lost themselves in the culture and the language of the people that they took over. But I think they, they did become the ruling class, or you know, the ruling class of Boston, I, I'd say. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Well, listen, thank you. Well, thank you for writing the book. You know, I can't wait to read it. I'm betting a lot of our listeners will want to read it. And thank you for caring about our globe, like caring enough to, to invest the effort. Thank you for being so creative as to connect to that incredible song. And thank you for being the person that you are. I really have enjoyed our time together. And I, I truly hope that, you know, maybe we end up in Portugal together or Bhutan or yeah. who the Let's hell knows. But uh, keep doing the, the good work. And thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much, Chris. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe, to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.